I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Barenko. I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff. Dean, hark! It's time for an episode about angels. Did you? Are you ready for it? Are you ready for all these angels that we're about to talk about? Yeah, I mean, the hark was startling, but it really got my attention. Good, because it's, it's supposed to. That's why angels say hark, so they get your attention. So you know that you're about to be angelified. Yeah, you've been, you've been harked. <laughs> <laughs> you've been harked and uh we're gonna keep bringing you messages throughout this entire episode just like angels do um folks it's time for an episode of magnificast about angels as students of the immortal science of marxism leninism uh we're not very good students uh we're, we're maybe like uh i don't know i'm a d i'm a d student for sure about marxism leninism um but we don't talk about the metaphysical very often for a lot of reasons because it's uncomfortable it's weird we don't like it. <laughs> I maybe I do like it sometimes, but um, it's complicated to say the least, right? <laughs> it is complicated. What's going on up there? Nobody knows. Theologians have spent uh, millennia trying to figure out how many angels can fit on the top of a pin, and guess what? I don't even know. I how wish they would just figure one. it out. Just give me a new number every year. Come out with a new number. It's fine. That's why you can keep your textbooks, um, you know, circulating and into the classrooms. Oh, this year we've got. 300 angels on this pinhead. Yeah, they could just tell me it's like 38 or something, and I would take their word for it. I wouldn't question it whatsoever. If a theologian tells me something, I definitely believe every time. <laughs> I can't believe you're not Roman Catholic. <laughs> it's hard to believe, actually. Thinking about the uh, the supernatural side of Christianity is, I don't know, confusing. I don't know what to do with any of it. Um, I don't know. I could say more, but I won't. But this week, we're skewing all of that. We're throwing it all off because we're going to bring you a hot episode with a material-ish-istic reading of angels uh, from perhaps one of the most niche French philosophers uh, called Michel Serra, and he has a book called Angels. So we're going to talk about it. Uh, you know us. Uh, Dean and I, we have read too much philosophy for our own good, and we love these wacky French guys. Um. And uh, especially the sort of like turn of the century, postmodern kind of guys, um, they're great. And Michel Serres definitely falls into that category in one way or the other. But he's definitely a character in French philosophy that you probably wouldn't come across in your um, undergraduate philosophy class unless you have a really mean teacher. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so we're going to talk about Michel Serres and his book on angels. Dean, 
let's talk about Michelle Sarah before we before we talk about Angels though. This guy, he's great. Yeah, he's great. Uh, longtime listeners of the Magnificast will remember that we used to want to talk a lot about this guy named Paul Virilio, a weird French uh, philosopher who talked a lot about technology. And he's a very interesting character. He's kind of in the mix. We've also talked about Bruno Latour on this show. So Sarah's kind of in that big uh, group of French people talking about philosophy, science, and religion in the weirdest ways that you can imagine. And Sarah has his own particularly weird way of doing it. Uh, he tells a lot of stories. He talks a lot about uh, sociology, but in a way that you wouldn't think that he's talking about sociology until it's too late. All of a sudden, you're stuck. You're talking about it. You didn't even know. Um, his uh, his big strategy is to really, I think, reel you in with the the scene or the fable and then get your brain working. And I really like that a lot. Uh, a lot of other French philosophers are kind of a pain to read. And Sarah is also a bit of a pain, but like he at least is uh, somebody who can like help you have a little bit of fun as you go through it. Yeah, totally. Um, grouping him in with Bruno Latour and Paul Virilio is is exactly right. He's a bit younger than Latour, but uh, Sarah and Latour are like collaborators in some capacity. Um, let's see. Well, oh, Michelle Sarah, he, he's now passed. He died in 2019, so very recently. But he's one of those French philosophers that kind of comes out of the horrors of World War II and being in a you know, a, a fascist-occupied country. Um, I read a an interview uh, with Michelle Sarah that Bruno Latour actually conducted, and he uh, Sarah in it said that he was six when he saw his first dead bodies, which is like a, mm-hmm. a formative event, I think, for anybody. Um, but what's interesting, though, is I think... Oh, this isn't, like, 100% true, um, and not saying Michelle Sarah is not, like, a critical person or that he doesn't have some, like, teeth to his work, because he definitely does. But he is not as pessimistic, I think, as some other French philosophers of the same era. Like, you know, Baudrillard or Paul Virilio, they have like, (laughs) you know, um, some hard walls that they cannot get over. Where Michel Sarah is, I don't know if hopeful is the right word, but he's definitely having more fun with it. And Mm -hmm. um, that's cool, I think. There's a book that he wrote um, that is not the one we're talking about, but it's called Thumbelina. And it's like a book that he wrote so it's a book he wrote about technology, but about, um, but it's written to millennials is like the pit, the pitch of the book. <laughs> and I love it because it's just like technology is really changing a lot of things. I hope you guys have a good time with it. And like, that's kind of it. It's not like warning you that it's going to make you stupid or something. It's not like telling you the end of the world is coming. It's just telling you that you're going to be different people. And that's pretty weird. And uh, he's right. And I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good counterpoint, right? Because someone like Paul Virilio is going to tell you technology is changing you and it is also the end of the world and you should try to get out like while you while you still can, right? That you get the apocalypticism with somebody like uh, Virilio and maybe even worse with Baudrillard because guess what? It's the apocalypse and you you can't get out and all you can do is like watch it on TV while it happens to you. What a big bummer. <laughs> Uh, M- Michelle Sarah is is great because there is a playfulness there and he does like you said he does have his critical moments um, in fact in this book he has some really interesting things to say that could have come right out of a Paul Virilio book on cities and so on but he definitely isn't that way uh, on the whole and I can appreciate that another thing that's kind of interesting about Sarah is that he talks a lot about religion and I think it's unusual that he's kind of on the like the B squad of postmodern philosophers from France You know, everybody knows Derrida. We all know Foucault. Uh, Some of us know Deleuze, these kinds of people. 
Um, Sarah's maybe a little bit lower on that list of familiarity for Christians, especially, which I find really bizarre because in the early mid 2000s, there was this kind of like small industry, publishing industry of Christians talking about postmodern philosophy. And weirdly, they never talked about the Christian ones. <laughs> like they never talked about the ones who really are going out of their way to say something about religion like Virilio or like Latour, and in particular, Michelle Sarah. I feel like everywhere you look in Sarah's work, there's like, in every book I've ever read by him, there's at least one extremely wild example taken from theology or religious history or something, and he himself is uh, in invested in the Catholic Church. So it's weird that, like, you know, you never got a James K. A. Smith book about bringing Michelle Sarah to church, and maybe that's for the best. Maybe, we're, maybe we dodged a bullet, who could say, but... Uh, it's interesting to me that he never really got uh, drawn into that Christian orbit. So maybe that's also why I'm really interested in what he's doing, because it feels like a guy more people should have paid attention to and didn't. And now it's like an, an anachronistic interest, maybe in some way, but yeah. <laughs> but a pretty cool guy to read. Yeah, I agree. A very cool guy to read. I actually think that uh, it's not that anachronistic an interest. I think that Michelle Sarah still has a lot of things to say to people. Um, yeah, we'll talk about those in just a minute. We're going to talk about angels. I promise. I swear to God, this is not all about French <laughs> philosophy, though it's like mostly about French philosophy. But um, I want it's important that people kind of get a feel for like what this dude is about before we get into the angel conversation, because if you don't, you're going to be let down. <laughs> um, so I've written a blurb trying to encapsulate a little bit about what Michelle Sarah is about. And I'm going to just kind of try to explain it. Is that OK, Dean? I hope it I hope it works. Yeah, I can't wait to learn. OK. So Michel Serra, he's interesting for all kinds of reasons that we've talked about already, right? He's Catholic, he's French, things that we love. <laughs> I mean, not the French part, I could take or leave him, but <laughs> but French philosophers, I like them for some re very weird reason. Um, so he's Catholic in a really interesting way. He has a lot to say about um, uh, lots of Catholic theology. It comes out, it comes out in his work. You can't, if you if you read him and then you know he's Catholic, it all makes sense. It clicks into place for sure. Actually, just today, I was sharing a quote from Michelle Sarah about um, about gay marriage and the Holy Family in the Discord, uh, the Magnificast Discord, which you can join if you uh, subscribe to our Patreon at one dollar or more. And, uh, anyways, it all made sense to everyone as soon as I posted it. Um, okay, anyways, <laughs> <laughs> a great a great uh, organic marketing plug. He's Catholic in an interesting way, and it comes out in his work, and you're gonna. Feel it for sure in this episode. He engages with lots of theology and other types of religious philosophy. He's extremely interested <laughs> in like lots of like Greek mythic figures, Hermes, Hercules, all these guys that are in there, <laughs> all your favorite Disney characters. <laughs> They're all in the mix. Um, but uh, surprisingly, perhaps, he's not like a philosopher of religion. He's not a sociologist of religion. He is a philosopher of science um, or a sociologist of science. Uh, people in all kinds of those like science and technology studies um, in, in those types of like academic discourses are kind of interested in Sarah for a few different reasons. So what makes Sarah a really unique thinker, uh, philosopher, sociologist, and so on, is that he's always trying to explore scientific topics, sociological topics, these like big ideas that, uh, you know, were handed to, um, were, were handed by science. <laughs> But he's doing it through the access that non-scientific language grants rather than like a, a universal or like, a, you know, objective, quote unquote, type of language. So instead of talking about sociological things or whatever, he'll talk about a, a weird fable or a weird story or a weird French game. 
So, for example, one of Sarah's most famous books, I think, is called Parasite. And in it, he describes a really complex sociological relationship between in-groups and out-groups. But it's all done through this, like, extended fable through this long-ass book <laughs> about city rats and country rats and who gets to eat first and all of this kind of thing, right? <laughs> yeah, you've seen the movie. It's It was a great uh, interpretation for sure. <laughs> for sure. It, this is uh, Five Goes West or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, but what's neat about this book, Parasite, is that he concludes something really interesting that I think is, like, a pretty deep sociological insight that you, you know, would find maybe not in a book about rats. <laughs> um, and that is that like um, minority groups and all groups, all human groups fundamentally share a parasitic relationship with some larger host. And uh, these, uh, these minority groups, however they might manifest can make themselves felt within the relationship of parasite and host by becoming a problem for other people, <laughs> you know, like, biting biting you a little bit too hard sucking your blood i mean you know the, the you can see how um that might sound like a negative connotation but he tackles this in the book and it's this whole thing anyways it's a really cool book and uh, if you if you want to read something bizarre this is for you important to point out maybe that uh yeah parasite just to double down is not a negative uh, attribute for sarah so he's not being like minorities are parasites in a bad way or a kind of like fashy way right uh instead he's trying to get at something interesting with that term and you have to read the whole book to figure it out but just <laughs> just want to flag that here so you don't go away from this podcast being like michelle sarah thinks that minorities are uh i don't know sucking off the system or whatever it's yeah. not a right-wing talking point no for sure it's not he's talking about it in a different register um humans in general are parasites um off the earth right but in in you know sometimes a good way sometimes a bad way Mostly a bad way. Um, anyways, <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the other like pretty consistent themes of Sarah's work is thinking of non-human entities like, you know, the climate, weather, nature, animals, and even like uh, technological devices and objects as being actors in relationship to humans and alongside humans. And another of uh, Sarah's well-known works is called, uh, kind of on the same point, is called The Natural Contract. And through a series of very complicated explanations of, like, paintings and poems and parables and stories, <laughs> uh, this is how all his work always goes, Sarah argues that there's, like, a social, just like that there's a social contract between humans, that there should also be, like, a natural contract between humans and nature, um, which is interesting. Um the, the book opens with this, like, description of this painting of these two people fighting as they're sinking into the mud. And, like, that's kind of the relationship that he sees. Um, and uh, we should just stop sinking into the mud. It's kind of it's the moral <laughs> story. Um, so Michelle Sarah, he takes on all these kinds of, like, weird and unusual subjects to get at a fundamentally interesting observation about the world, about some kind of, like, scientific idea or so on, right? But the challenge with Sarah is that he's like notoriously reliant on French idioms and French examples, <laughs> making him extremely hard to translate into English. So he'll often reference some kind of like French joke or French historical event or place or like a, a French childhood game. And you'll have to spend, you know, like an hour down the rabbit hole trying to research about how, you know, what this has to do with what he's talking about. And it, it's like a deep, a deep, deep hole that you'll fall into. Um, <laughs> Uh, for example, in the book Parasite, 
there's this uh, particular philosophical idea that we'll talk about here in a little bit called the quasi-object, which um, I love a new philosophical term. It's one of my favorite things. I love when people just make up shit. It's great. Um, but to, to get to the bottom of this particular um, idea, he talks about this French game called, like, <laughs> it's called the ferret. And it's kind of like... Uh, it's like a who's got the button kind of game where you're trying to pass around this like toy ferret, I think. And anyways, it doesn't matter. But he, you know, <laughs> he, he'll, he'll do something like that every single time. And it's like something that should be straightforward and understandable. Like, oh, trying to make this make sense to people. It's like this game that everyone plays when they're children. But if you're not French, you'll never get it. So there's always like an extended <laughs> footnote that's trying to explain like, what is going on with this like ferret game? <laughs> and uh, anyways, that's how you can spend a lot of your time as a grad student if you feel like it. <laughs> reading we'll play it at French the uh, <laughs> we'll play it at the Magnificast Christmas party. Pass the ferret, <laughs> the ferret game. Uh, and great. if you if you lose, you have to read Michelle Sear. <laughs> Yikes! Uh, I gotta win. I can't go back to this. <laughs> I just did. I just did my time once again. My monthly or, or yearly Michelle Sarah penance. Um, <laughs> Okay, Dean, is there anything else we're missing out on before we, we jump into talking about angels? I think that is just about it. Um, I guess one other piece. So we're going to talk about angels. He wrote this whole book about angels, and it's really fun. It's very weird. Um, and it is, I don't know, if you if you like this piece, it's reflective of some of the other tendencies that you get in Sarah, which is that strange engagement with the Christian tradition for example, in I'm pretty sure it's in Thumbelina, there is also this image of the cephalophore, oh, uh, yeah. which are Christian saints who uh, don't have heads or their heads got cut off and they like carry their heads around. Um, St. Dennis is one of the most famous cephalophores, but they uh, you've probably seen a picture of them here or there or I don't know, you can Google them and see them. But basically, they're 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 kind of like headless horseman statues. So it'll be a saint and, he, and the saint is like holding his or her head you know, next to them at their waist or whatever. And Michelle Sarah will draw on that image to be like, oh, what an interesting thing. This is a saint. It's this kind of evocative statue, right? Um, what does it tell us about all these different ways that we relate to our bodies and so on? And that's like exactly what we're doing with our smartphones. We're all becoming cephalophores. Yeah. And he'll kind of tease out the metaphor in these really interesting, complicated ways. And I feel like the thing that maybe drives people to love or hate Sarah is that he pushes the metaphor as hard as it can to the point of breaking and then just keeps on going with it. Like it's all very lyrical, very over the top, but I think that's my favorite part about it. And I love that he does so much with the Christian tradition that way. So if you ever just want to like have a weird opinion about something like cephalophores and your smartphones, Sarah is, is your guy. You'll find all kinds of extremely weird things that you can show up at a party and be like, have you ever thought about this? And that's basically <laughs> all it's good for, but it's pre it's pretty good for that. I love um, that example about the cephalophores is so great because it's almost, you know, okay, saying that he's pushing a metaphor to its breaking point is like one way of putting it. But I think in another way, Michelle Serre is like extremely not metaphoric. Like he will take <laughs> yeah, a sure. religious idea like the cephalophore. And he'll be like, and that's just how things are. <laughs> just, <laughs> that's right. Just like St. Dennis, you're walking around with your, with your head detached in your hands and you're just, uh, you're thinking with your phone and not with your brain. And there you go. I don't know. I mean, it, either way you look at it, I feel like he's, he takes these things and he makes them extremely literal in ways that I think you get a lot of like mileage out of when you 
start engaging with it. Yeah, so that is a great transition into this book because that is exactly what Michelle Sarah is doing in the book. It's called Angels, a Modern Myth. And he is taking angels as seriously as a person can take them. So you can think about medieval society. They're also kind of doing this in a funny way, trying to figure out how many angels can fit on the head of a pin. But they're almost like getting, uh, you know, they're making it too complicated. Michelle Sarah is like, it's so easy. Angels, fundamentally, the one thing you got to know about them is that they are messengers. And that's basically it. Uh, there's all kinds of other stuff. Michelle Sarah loves to talk about wings and what they're what they are. And, uh, you know, angel hierarchies and all that kind of stuff. Jacob's ladder. Any anything that anyone has ever said about angels, you can find Michelle Sarah referencing it in the book. But the key is that they're messengers, and that's the the big piece. And the way that he sort of starts the book, I think, is already kind of suggestive. So the book, it's like a kind of almost like a Platonic dialogue, right? If you've ever read Plato writing about Socrates and He's developing his philosophy with Socrates talking with all these other people, kind of like it's a play. Michelle Sarah is doing the same thing. And in, in his scene, there's two characters who are talking at an airport, which is a really suggestive place for a book about messengers and angels and so on. And he starts with one of the characters saying, angels are legendary beings. I don't know whether I believe in them or not. But how else are we to read and understand these sounds in this hurly-burly world where nobody actually lives and everyone's just speeding through? Uh, the other person replies, I have an idea that you're using the word legend like legend, like the legend that map makers put under maps. The key that you have to study in order to read them. Am I right? Yes, the other person says. Yes, Socrates, exactly. Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, you you get this kind of sense, right, that there's something that's kind of a key about the idea of angels, about who they are as kind of, you know, metaphysical beings. They're not quite human. They're not quite God. They're somewhere in between. They're sort of virtual, like they're always also speeding around the ancient world. They're appearing to people. They're giving them messages from God. There are these intermediary figures, right? They're not God. They don't have a message themselves necessarily. They're just kind of delivering it here. And there's something about that function that tells us something uh, that can help us find our way in the bizarre world of air transportation and communications technologies and our own ability as humans in a postmodern or information society or whatever, our own ability to kind of be everywhere all at once. And I think that is actually pretty fun and, and a great premise for a, a way of investigating postmodern society. Totally. Um, so the thing I said earlier about how Sarah engages with these particular, like maybe myths, I mean, it's the word myths is the word that he uses fables, stories, legendary characters, you know, like angels is that it gives you access to thinking about our particular, like technological situation in ways that, you know, maybe you wouldn't otherwise, right? Like, you could talk about instantaneous communication between people in a really straightforward way. And there are, there's particular things that gets you, right? Like, you can talk about the um, miles of underwater cable that connect us to one another and, like, you know, makes those types of communication possible, or you can talk about the copper that you need for those cables. And in that register, too, you get a different type of conversation. You can talk about it phenomenologically, about how weird it is that you can be in one time zone and talk to somebody who is across the world, you know, um, instantaneously. And they are already in tomorrow, right, because of the time difference or whatever. And all those ways of talking about the world can be interesting and helpful and fruitful. But there's something that is like, you know, 
Um, but but what what Michelle Sarah wants to do in his work is try to say like none of those ways of talking about the world are necessarily exhaustive, nor are they objective in the meta narrative sense, right? That they're not ever telling the whole story. That uh, there's always something kind of left out of the story, and Michelle Sarah's like work is always finding something that is left out that he's going to just kind of push into it in some way, right? And make you consider this whole different thing. So anyway, so when you're talking about instantaneous communication, you're talking about like how people can travel around the world extremely quickly and so on. Um, he thinks that is actually like, you know, it is formally, it is, uh, it, it's, it carries the tropes of the angelic form of a, a being that can just show up and reveal something to you. And I think that's kind of right. I don't know. It, it's funny because uh, what I like about this this very first sentence too here is that he he does this thing that I think is actually really fun, um, where he says, you know, there we live in this like extremely technological world um, that has all of these you know technological aspects to it, and you have to know all of the ins and outs of these different systems to really understand it. But it's like at the end of the day, like when you send a text message to somebody and it does appear on their screen within like, you know, a tenth of a second or something or maybe a little more. Who knows? I don't actually know. Um, you know, it's actually pretty magical in your experience. So like, I don't know. Is it angelic? Like kind of, right? <laughs> it's not that far removed. <laughs> like the average person, even me, a person who studies media and technology for a long time, I don't really know how it works in any specificity. And anytime I tell a story about it, it's always kind of like telling a, a, a piece of the story. So I don't know. Why not get wild with it? Why, why not uh, see what this affords you to talk about it in this uh, more religious and uh, theological register than, I don't know, um, other uh, other metaphors, other uh, language? Yeah. And what is also interesting is so angels reveal something about the technology, right? They tell us something about like you said, what it's like to be able to talk to somebody in a different time zone and, and it gives you a, a certain valence on, on talking about that. It also works in a sort of recursive way where the world in which we live also tells us something about angels, which is really fun. Uh, there's a lot of different conversations that are opened up throughout the book around uh, stories about angels. For example, like Jacob's Ladder in the Bible, right? The angels kind of walking up and down from heaven. Sarah has a great riff on that image where he's kind of talking about communications technologies that give us a, a way to sort of become like closer and further away from God, you know, further and closer away from ourselves. But you also learn a lot about angels in that exchange, that angels are the ones who are kind of mediating between God and creation in these interesting ways. And uh, I think that is probably a pretty under theologized thing as well. I don't know if you're if you're a person out there looking for a master's thesis or whatever, you could definitely do one on the implicit theology of Michelle Sayre. There's a long tradition of Christians thinking about a subject like angels um, and, you know, looking into Aristotelian philosophy and other kinds of philosophical languages to make sense of these beings that appear in the biblical story. But what I really like about Michelle Sarah is he's kind of doing that, except like his touch point isn't Aristotle. It's like, I don't know, whoever else he's reading in the 20th century in France. You know, he's yeah. trying to sort of it's not like he's creating a theology of angels in the same way that like Thomas Aquinas is doing that. But he is uh, using the philosophical tools of his day to talk about angels in the same way that Aquinas is, is doing that, you know, using the tools of his day to talk about angels. Totally. So. I think there's something really fun there for Christians as well to be like, yeah, what does it mean to be a person living in this society thinking about 
you know, these weird historical literary figures. Yeah, that's right. This is a book about a lot of things for sure, but it is undeniably metaphysics. And uh, I don't know. (laughs) You can't get around that. (laughs) Okay, so there's a lot going on here. We'll get to some of the other bits here in a minute. But fundamentally, the angelic sort of form, right, uh, is is something that uh, for Sarah comes down to fluxes, <laughs> which is an unhelpful word, I think. But let me read a little <laughs> passage from this and we can talk through more about like what's happening here. So, you know, there's there's the angel as messenger, right? And we can talk about that in terms of, you know, like I, like I, I just I was just using text messages as an example or emails or whatever. People bringing messages to one another or people getting on an airplane and like literally flying to another place to talk to somebody else. Um, that's that's messenger. That's messenger behavior. That's big messenger energy. Um, <laughs> the BME for sure. <laughs> yeah. But these types of like exchanges or carrying, I guess, um, they happen in other contexts as well and in a lot broader types of situations. So th- this is a bit from this conversation, again, between these two <laughs> imaginary people that Michelle Sarah puts in an airport. Uh, so one person says to the other, just to please you, instead of angels, I'll call them intermediaries or messengers. No system without things being transmitted. The other person responds, ah, so no world without wind. No world without all the fluxes interacting. Pia, that's one of the, that's the other person, with an air of sensuality. I love swimming in the rivers, the crest of gentle breeze, gentle sunshine, and the feeling of fluid earth in the mud bath, the four elements in movement. Pantopi, the other person, with a professional air, could we perhaps use the, use, could we perhaps use one word to describe all of these bearers, all of these bearers of messages of, uh, of movements and, and so on? Wind creates flows of air in the atmosphere. Rivers make flows of water across land. Glaciers make solid rivers, cutting their way across mountains and valleys. Rain, snow, and hail are flows of water through air. Marine currents are flows of water within water. Volcanoes are vertical flows of fire from earth into the air or into the sea. Lava flows and mud flows are liquid earth, respectively hot and cold, moving across land and drifting continents are moving carpets of land floating on fire right at the heart of the earth. Scientists have identified flows of fire within its subterranean fire and up in the atmosphere and out in space, fluxes of heat and light. So I'm reading this piece because I, I think that the, the bigger picture is necessary, right? The angelic form, I think, um, is is not just human, but it's also uh, has a lot to do with nature. It's about one thing moving to another place, and and there's a there's a, a distinction here that that Michelle Sarah is going to make that I think is really interesting. That um, meaning, intention, communication isn't solely a human thing, or isn't solely a a divine. Th- I mean, maybe it is divine in like the big picture. But it's not just something that humans do, right? Whenever one thing is carrying to another place, Michelle Sarah thinks that's sort of the the form, the, the angelic form, right? You're you're doing the work of angel to uh, mediate one thing to another place, and Sarah thinks that it's not just humans that do that. It's like all of these different things. It's you know lava underground. It's um, you know the continents drifting and so on. And um, all let's say he is uh, an He's he's against anthropomorphism. He's against like the whole idea that humans are somehow special in creation. Um, he thinks a lot about non-humans and like how 
I, I mean, how we can listen to them, how we can like kind of come into an understanding of the world that pays attention to things that aren't human um, in, in a really serious way, in, in a way that really interrogates knowing beyond just like scientific data. Yeah, and he goes on to add to that, I think, in ways that, that pull that out. Uh, he says, working through a combination of fire, air, and water, these flows bring the news of Alice Springs to sign or, or origin I admit that the coded message isn't exactly easy to decipher, but we're beginning to crack it. As the wind hits Cape Joburg, it informs the first French person it meets about events that are happening in Florida and Australia. Uh, to which the other person says, come to think of it, less of a letdown. I can already see the angels there. Uh, wind is a messenger that may be good or bad or a giver or a stealer, chubby pooty or devils incarnate. Thanks to the wind, any of those places that you just mentioned echo with the totality of space. One breeze bears and announces the whole universe. Each flux breaks down into myriad single particles, but all, but they all go to make up the world. Each of them bears little bits, which, when put together, make the larger whole. And I think that is also a really interesting thing. We live in an information society. That's kind of one way of talking about uh, the revolution of information technologies, Google and uh, the Internet and cell phones and satellites and all that kind of stuff. But what I think is so fascinating is Michelle Sarah is like, well, we've kind of always been living in an information technology because everything is bearing some kind of information, right? Humans are creatures who can read things in the world in bizarre sorts of ways. Uh, I think that there's actually a, a lot going on there with uh, Sarah's work on hermeneutics and what it means to kind of develop a philosophy of reading or interpretation and that sort of thing. And he's applying that to the world around us in such a way that, yeah, the breeze can be an angel insofar as it brings you some kind of information. You might need an instrument to detect what that information is. You know, you might have to be like, a weather person or something. You need the Doppler radar to figure out what's what's coming and how to read the signs. But fundamentally, uh, there is this angelic function that even creation plays. And I think that materialization of angels is actually a really fun bringing together of like the sacred and the profane in Sarah's work. Yeah, I think that's all exactly right. Let me add one more piece here, I think, sure. to kind of push the, push the point that Sarah is making. So the conversation in this airport continues. And um, one of the people uh, in this conversation is a little bit skeptical. <laughs> I think about this whole thing, right? Not uh, antagonistically so, just a little bit. So uh, the person answers this whole explanation of like angels and fluxes and circulation and, and so on um, like this. If winds, currents, glaciers, volcanoes, etc., carry subtle messages that are so difficult to read that it takes us absolutely ages trying to decipher them, wouldn't it be appropriate to call them intelligent? What human could ever presume to speak a language that was so precise, refined, and exquisitely coded? And then they, the other person answers, Don't you think it's rather arrogant of us to assume that we're the only intelligent beings in this world when the river Garon and the south wind carry with them and express more things than I can ever be able to write and express them better? They read instantaneously the messages of other fluxes, filter them and make their choice, combine them with their own, translate them and write them on land or water. They can serve them for a long time. They express themselves through explosions, roarings, noise, and murmurings, tinkling and laughing. The movement of these fluxes need nothing to inspire them because they are the inspiration. And then uh, the other person responds. This is the last part, I promise. <laughs> they say, how would it be if it turned out that we were only the slowest and least intelligent beings in the world? Tradition says that above us, there are angels. 
Okay, this is, I think this is great, though, because it does take extremely seriously this, uh, the metaphysics that they're setting up. And it does, I think, it pulls something out about nature that I think uh, people don't think very often. <laughs> what if the Earth, I mean, you hear about things like the Gaia, the Gaia hypothesis, even from, like, theologians like Boff or whatever, right? Or uh, you'll hear even people, like, in, I don't know, sometimes you hear, like, stuff in environmental spaces where people will be like, you know, the earth is a living organism or whatever. And uh, it's never really clear exactly what people mean by those things. But in this example, Sarah thinks that the earth is not just a living organism, but it's a lot of living organisms. It's a lot of things kind of pushing and pulling on one another. It's a lot of things reading, interpreting the signs of other things and like passing those signs on to other things, (laughs) you know, in this, in this really interesting way. Right. And, um, and, and maybe there's an intelligence there. I think that's really a really interesting idea, though, that like, um, you know, whatever, the wind blows in this particular way and it moves the water in this other particular way. And that for uh, Sarah is not just an angelic enunciation, a revelation of some type of information, but it's also the it's also interpretation of another non-human being um, about like what's happening in the world. And I don't know. A lot of wild ideas. Not exactly sure what to make of them, but it's a really fun way to think about the world. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me a lot of uh, when we were talking about Willem Flisser and St. Francis a few episodes ago, where St. Francis has this kind of egalitarian left-wing, Flisser called it, a left-wing interpretation of creation as opposed to Darwin, because uh, Francis sees all of creation as being on a horizontal plane. He's in this sibling relationship with all of creation, Whereas for Darwin, there's this story of the lesser kind of getting subsumed by the better and better and better, ending with humanity as the top of creation, uh, this kind of vertical path. And I feel like, the, I, I mean, maybe it's just because we've been talking about St. Francis for weeks <laughs> on this podcast, and I guess we're doing it again on accident, but uh, I can't help but read a kind of Franciscan spirit into that uh, that idea as well, that, you know, Brother Sun and Sister Moon, <laughs> there's this kind of sense in which uh, everything is expressing something. Uh, everything has some kind of intelligence to it, uh, depending on how we want to restrict that kind of definition. And that's the thing I like most about Michelle Sarah. He's just like not concerned with nailing down all the categories exactly right. He just wants to say like, well, what if we did sort of think of this this way? Where would that get us? And he's kind of willing to take you there. And the fact that it's done in, in a dialogue form I think really assists that, you know, you can sort of allow the associations that come to you to sort of play with the with the the text, because it's not an argument per se. It's just like a series of, uh, I don't know, a series of impressions that are leading you down uh, a path, you know, and uh, that path being like, yeah, what if uh, big wind currents are also angels and also intelligent in some some kind of way and you know, bear some kind of message for those of us who are able to to hear it. I think there's some kind of, you know, resonance there with what we've even been talking about with St. Francis. Totally. You know, it's like there's a there's one level in which this is just like a fun and sort of like uh, interesting meditative practice, I think, maybe to think about the world in this different way. But I think there's another level where it's actually extremely important um, as we are, you know, um, <laughs> already kind of down the path of climate catastrophe there's there's something about this that is fundamentally like subjectively different like that will you know if you take it very seriously if you think about it in this like i think the way that you're taking it right now dean like franciscan way 
uh, it, it, it sets you on a different path to live a different type of life if you really, you know, are <laughs> consumed by it in a good way. So I don't know. Um, but but this is hinging on, I think, um, is this is hinging on Michelle Sarah's big, like, philosophical idea that I think comes out in this book and comes out in basically every book he writes. Philosophers, you know, they usually have one good idea. And um, Michelle Sarah, he's no exception. He has one good idea that he gets to express in a whole lot of different books. And I think it's great. So it, I'd love to have one. I would love to have one great idea. I don't think I'm probably going to. <laughs> I think as close <laughs> as I'm ever going to get is reading other people's good ideas. And that's fine. Um, but uh, for Sarah, his one good philosophical idea, the one that he uses again and again and thinks is like really worth kind of figuring out is interesting. It is called the quasi-object and uh, sometimes the quasi-subject. So in philosophy, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to talk about this. And Dean, maybe you can like help me expand a bit more here. But in philosophy, you know, there's, and in philosophy and in grammar (laughs) and uh, everything, right? We think of things in terms of objects and subjects, right? Um, A subject is not an object. Uh, You know, you're you're playing a, a game of ball, right? And usually we think of us, the, the players, um, you know, as as subjects to the object or something. You know, sometimes we can we can mix that around in different ways depending on which philosopher you're talking to. There's a huge a huge conversation going on about subjects and objects and how they relate to one another. But usually when we talk about objects and subjects, I you know, keep switching them up for whatever reason. Um, humans are at the center of the equation. Like when you're watching football, you're watching not the ball, you're watching the people play. Right? That's the kind of idea. But Michelle Sarah has some different ideas with the quasi-object. Um, he, I, I'm going to read this bit here, and we'll talk about it, and maybe, like, what it means. But um, <laughs> this is where, like, the weird French part of it all kind of comes into question. Um, so in this example I'm going to read here, Michelle Sarah is talking about, uh, he uses the word ferret, but he uses the French word, which I'm not going to try to say. And uh, just up front, let me tell you, in the footnote, uh, a kind translator has said this. The ferret is the animal, but it's also the well-known marker in a game somewhat like Hunt the Slipper or Who's Got the Button. So when he uses the word <laughs> ferret, he's using it in this sense. It's a, it's part of a game where you're passing around something. I guess French people, they love this. They love this thing. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, anyways, an important translator's note before we get into it. Okay, so I'm going to read the philosophical part here and we'll we'll figure it out. The quasi-object is not an object, but it is one nevertheless, since it is not a subject. Since it is in the world, it is also a quasi-subject, since it marks or designates a subject who, without it, would not be a subject. This is all very confusing. He who has not discovered with the ferret in his hand is anonymous, part of a monotonous chain where he remains undistinguished. He is not an individual. He is not recognized, discovered, or cut. He is of the chain and in the chain. He runs like the ferret in the collective. The thread in his hands is our simple relation. The absence of the ferret, its path makes our indivision. And then who are we? Those who pass the ferret, those who don't have it. This quasi-object, when being passed, makes the collective. If it stops, it makes the individual. If he is discovered, he's it. Who is the subject? Who is an I? Who am I? The moving ferret weaves the we, the collective. If it stops, it marks the I. So imagine this for a hot second. <laughs> you're, <laughs> I'm trying. You're so playing hard. Duck Duck Goose. I'm going to translate this into uh, an American parlance. You're playing Great. Duck Duck Goose, right? 
And uh, you're in the circle with all your friends, and someone is walking around saying, duck, 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 right? And in that moment, the person who is uh, who is it, right, they're weaving the group together. They're the one who is creating the collective of the organization. And everyone else is just, like, in the mix. And when someone says goose, they become a person. They become it. They become, like, the person who is, like, subjectified in, in the moment. And then that's how it works, right? But if you're not picked, who are you in that game? You're nobody. You're just you're just one duck among any. Here's another example. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so Sarah goes on to say this. A ball is not an ordinary object, for it is what it is only if a subject holds it. Over there on the ground, it's nothing. It's stupid. It has no meaning, no function, no value. Ball is played alone. Those who hog the ball are bad players, and they're soon excluded from the game. They're said to be selfish. The collective game doesn't need persons, people out for themselves. In this example, I don't know, you're playing a game of ball, you're passing it around to each other, whatever. You're playing soccer, you're playing football, you're playing basketball, it does not matter. But the idea here is that, like, you know, you think you're you're watching the game, you're playing the game, and you think the game is about you, but the game is about the ball. Because if the ball wasn't there, you wouldn't be drawn into the collective. You wouldn't be uh, drawn into the assemblage of people playing the game. And this is all, like, it seems like maybe some silly semantics, some silliness for sure. I, I think it is silly, and, and maybe that's also why it's so interesting. But there's something true about it, uh, because... Um, not only are are games of ball or <laughs> who's got the ferret, whatever, drawing people into the collective, but all kinds of other things are drawing people into the collective. You know, we live in a wor- world of quasi-objects and quasi-subjects, things that are not quite as inert and dead and stupid as we think, but actually have, you know, some kind of information to convey or who draw us into particular relationships, Um who define our identity as a as you know individuals or as species and so on. So there's a there's a bigger picture here that Sarah is trying to trying to construct, right? The language is complicated because he's trying to draw out something that is extremely big and vague, right? Like how do you find, you know, your identity within a large system like the earth or something? Um how how do you find like, you know, how do you fit in that? And, and it's through these types of games um or, you know, these relationships that we're drawn into from, from other actors that we don't even think about as, like, particularly interesting or, or bearing intelligence or bearing a type of, like, you know, even worth in the world. Um, so we're, we're drawn into things by all of these, you know, non-human things in the world. Yeah, I think that is, uh, I mean, it, it, it might be hard to get your head around, but it's a good contribution from Sarah, mostly because it does challenge that anthropocentrism that we all kind of have in western capitalist societies that humans are really the only important actors in the world i mean our society is organized in that way that's why capitalism is destroying the whole planet because our need for uh, a bunch of minion funko pops or whatever is actively outstripping all the other kinds of uh forms of messages all the other kinds of objects subjects quasi objects or whatever that are around us that actually make our lives possible that not only draws into a collective socially, but draws into like, you know, the means of life at right. all. And I think that's something that I appreciate about Sarah too, that he's trying to expand our identity to see that we're pretty porous people, uh, porous creatures. Um, you know, we're, we're held up by our relationships to other stuff. Nobody is kind of 
shut up within themselves. You're you're always taking in things from the environment and also giving things uh, back to the environment, um, good and bad in both directions. So I, I feel like that's a an important thing that we really can't remind ourselves uh, enough of um, as the, the planet. You know, every day you're like assaulted with messages that try to prevent you from, I don't know, broadening your horizon of care or concern beyond your own consumptive yeah. needs. Well, here's one more example from Michelle Sarah's expansive and extremely weird work. Um, he has a really short book that's called Malfeasance, and it's a book about private property and how humans like exercise property over something. And it's really interesting because it's not, it's a type of economic reading of property that I think you'll not find anywhere else because it's not really about labor. It's not really about capital. It's instead about this, um, this extremely like animalistic human thing <laughs> that people do to mark property through, um, through pollution, through spoiling, through like excrement and stuff. Which sounds bizarre on, on the front end, but Michelle Sarah makes a pretty good case that, like, the way that humans come to possess land is by, like, making that land or that thing unusable by other creatures by, like, pushing everything out, right? So, like, for example, uh, if you, if somebody wants to say they own a plot of land, they will uh, put up a big fence and make sure that no one else can get into that fence, right? And, and then um, they'll till that land and sow it with chemicals so that nothing but, like, a particular type of crop will grow there, pushing out all of the, you know, the diverse biological, you know, little creatures and guys that live in there. So that, like, um, only through the dispossession of all these other types of life can someone, can a human, say that they own something, right? So this is, um, this is at least a, another example of, of how humans kind of throw themselves into that collective in, um, in particularly negative ways. Um, I don't mm -hmm. know. <laughs> um, again, something that's not like quite clear what you're supposed to do with, but uh, I think it's try. It, it kind of proves the point, right? You're um, you're always drawn into a particular relationship with non-humans, but uh, whether or not you think about that very hard is another story. Mm-hmm. Well, um, we've been talking about non-humans. Let's maybe close the conversation with uh, some passages that I think stuck out to both of us where Michelle Sarah talks about particular humans or, or non-particular humans, I guess, <laughs> as, well, as we'll see. Um, so Michelle Sarah, he's talking about angels. Angels give you messages. They deliver some kind of information to you. And it might be the wind, it might be lava flows, whatever else, all these kind of non-human actors, but also humans are in the mix as angels. So in the dialogue, right, it's taking place in this airport. There are all these people that kind of come through the airport and break up the dialogue. And of course, the two people talking, it's sort of the <laughs> the not so subtle implication is that they're angels to one another, right? Um, but Michelle Sayre kind of gives himself a little bit of a... I don't know, like a chance to talk about uh, about particular people who function as angels in that space in the narrative and then also more generally. So let me read one of the more general kind of comments. This is like an aside in the text. So Michel Serre, he's taking a political turn here and he says, as a message bearer from the third and fourth worlds, abject destitution reveals to us a fundamental time and existence which history lessons in our country have never taught. More than the poor and the wretched, the absolutely destitute of the earth risk seeing even the seeds of humanity destroyed in them and around them by the horror of this assault. 
Can we say that the only true man, pardon me, is the man who chooses to stand up and confront the risk of the destruction of his humanity? Yes, and he becomes so primally human that this book calls him the Archangel, in the sense of the original meaning of Arche, origin, beginnings. We are all born from poverty, and to it we shall all return. So, uh, Sarah's kind of, you know, on a bit of a political and poetic uh, <laughs> uh, waxing moment here. But he's trying to, to say something about uh, the, the destitute, the absolutely destitute of the world. They um, not only do they kind of uh, give us a message about the conditions of reality that, you know, you're not taught in the history books or whatever. But also there's this sort of sense in which they're they're the archangels who, who tell you something even truer because they're closer to bare life or something. And uh, we can problematize that in a minute. Uh, but uh, there's something interesting there happening where Michelle Sarah wants to say that. Um, the very existence of certain kinds of people being on the margins of society or being utterly excluded from a system uh, that carries information that we sort of actively suppress in a, a capitalist society. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, um, I don't know. It, there's so many really challenging examples of this. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know. You'll read all kinds of I mean, on this podcast. We almost exclusively <laughs> read philosophy about de like dependency theory philosophy about you know um the exploitation of the uh, of the global south and i mean that type of marxist analysis is one way of getting that particular message out it's it's angelic sorry marxist um <laughs> but i mean you see capitalism all the time trying to find ways to like you just said i don't know suppress those types of messages to skirt around them to spin counter narratives, right? Um, there's a, a part later on in, in this book where uh, Sarah talks about like fallen angels and people who are, you know, evil, <laughs> which is a whole different different thing. We're going to talk about demons a little bit later on the podcast. So if you like the if you like this angel episode, get ready for demons and the devil. Um, it's gonna be great. But anyways, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's an it's an interesting thing. Uh, like you said. Though, Dean, there is a way to problematize this. Like, on the one hand, you know, there's something interesting about that, that um, people who are um, from the global south who are telling us about, like, you know, the exploitation that they face there. Or uh, the example that comes from uh, this book in particular is that um, there's a, like, an unhoused person that's in the airport that they, that they treat medically, um, who they, they deem as angelic. And that's super interesting. That's super interesting to think of um, to think of people on like the outskirts of humanity and in, in any I guess in any way bringing a message that is like you know extremely human like I want to eat um, please give me a few bucks so I can do that and the ways that people ignore those messages and and when you frame it in terms of being an angelic message I feel like it, it adds an importance to it that is actually quite interesting and that should probably evoke a lot of shame I think in other people for like ignoring the message. You know, it's like <laughs> it's like a, a, a an angel comes to someone in the Bible and says, "Hark, let me tell you something." And uh, the person says, "I'm not going to look at you. I'm going to keep driving past you." And uh, you know, there's there's a certain rhetorical power to that and to framing um, people who are in poverty in that way for sure. Um, but Dean, uh, before we start talking, you were talking about a way that that's actually also um, you know a little bit dehumanizing. Um, so do you want to you want to hit that mm -hmm. one off? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you said, I think I understand why Michelle Serra does it. And it's not just him, like the Christian tradition does this in ways that I think can be really effective and, and moving, right? To see Christ in the poor, 
to have the poor be the kind of stand-in for um for for Jesus or for some narrative about, you know, they they reveal some deeper truth about us because I don't know, they're on the the, the margin or something. Um and I think that, you know, liberation theology does it, like a lot of people that we like do it, but there's there's a problem with that as well because uh while it tries to valorize um, the poor, it also kind of metabolizes the poor into a theology that makes them meaningful in a particular way that is not necessarily meaningful on the terms of the poor themselves, if that makes sense. Like, um, it's kind of hard to articulate, I guess, but maybe we can figure it out together. Like, you know, not every poor person uh, is like needs to be a symbol of like God or some deep right. truth of our reality for us to care about them. You know, I think <laughs> and like uh, also like poor people are really complicated. Um, you know, they uh, sometimes they can give you, I don't know, some kind of like interesting conversation but like to go to a poor person and assume you're going to get a pearl yeah. of wisdom <laughs> is like incredibly dehumanizing <laughs> and like also turns them into objects right it doesn't treat them as as subjects in their own right um it's like pretty disrespectful and i think too the uh the way sarah even ends this passage by saying uh we're all born from poverty and to it we shall all return like not exactly like we're not all born from poverty in the way that like a person in the favelas of Brazil is born in poverty, right? Like that's a qualitative difference and we will not return to that poverty. I mean, death is the great equalizer. We'll all return to cosmic dust or whatever, but like, you know, there are maybe experiences that we shouldn't like, we shouldn't allow our metaphysical sympathies or moments of sentimentality to like draw us too close to situations that truly are not ours. I think it's really important not to like, overstate the similarity there and and also to recognize that there is like a great distance that in some cases will be like insurmountable even by our faith and theology that like being poor is bad like it sucks you know and i think that like given the choice probably most poor people wouldn't want to be like uh angels per se they just want to you know <laughs> i don't know have a house or something right or like be able to to count on a meal or whatever it like all the kind of poeticizing and philosophizing that happens about the poor sometimes to me just feels really like icky it just feels i don't know what it is it, it feels kind of unfaithful to the actual experience of being around poor people which like like i said it's not to say that you you know just like with maybe this is what i'm saying any person poor or not can be a sort of chance by which you could come to some new understanding about yourself in the world or God's desire in the world and so on. Um, and to sort of give the poor a privileged space in this way, I, I just feel like sometimes we, we end up metabolizing them into something that's, that's not quite fair. Do you get what I'm saying, Matt? I don't know. What am I no. missing? It feels all a little jumbled, <laughs> but okay. No, I think that's good. I mean, it's true. I, I think that like, you know, there's something interesting cutting both ways. I, it's not like I think it, it's not like we're necessarily chastising like Sarah for saying this thing or particularly saying this up rhetorically because I think there's something to it. But I think there's also like a really important factor where if you reduce, it reduce feels weird when you're talking about calling somebody an angel. But if you're like you know promoting somebody <laughs> to that to that like stature, you're making them um, like almost responsible or like you're holding them up as like some type of uh, something that they might not be. Maybe this this will maybe help us uh, 
uh, generate some more thoughts about it. So uh, throughout this, like, you know, there's like this conversation going on in the airport. We've talked about that already. Um, and towards the end, uh, oh, sorry. So I, there's this conversation going on in the airport. Um, and there's an unhoused person that needs medical attention who ends up, sorry, spoiler alert, they end up dying. Um, and uh, they, the person's name, the, the unhoused person that dies is named Gabriel, which is a little like, you know, I mean, you you get it. You understand, like, <laughs> what's happening here. But there's this interesting exchange kind of at the end of this vignette where one of the people in this, like, you know, Socratic dialogue says, is there a human group anywhere in the world existing without poor people? The other person in the conversation responds, if rich people only ever lived with rich people, how could they ever get to know humanity? Right. And I guess like this is the rub is like on the one hand, like people who are in poverty, their very existence announces something about the world that is really important to know. People are suffering. People are oppressed. uh, People are purposely kept in poverty. You know, they're keep they're kept unemployed. They're kept in low wage jobs. Like those things are all true. They and, and people appearing before you to 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 say that into the world is important. And rich people need to hear those things for sure. Right. But also like making the making the role of an impoverished person, an oppressed person, a person kept in a low wage job, like making it their job to tell everyone the truth about the world is like setting them up to be something that like is just untenable. <laughs> like, you know, they just want to be a regular person. They're working their shift at McDonald's and they want to go home and like not every, like they don't have to do that. Right. Like it's not their job to tell everyone, you know, the truth of the world. People should just kind of like, I don't know, look around. Um, but it is like, yeah. there's a kind of like, there's a sort of like pitying moment in mm, that as well. Yeah. You know, like it's, I guess what it is, it doesn't feel like solidarity per se. I think Michelle Sarah's trying to do that. And I appreciate that. Like he's trying to, his heart's in the right place. He's trying to uh, create some kind of real sympathy with the poor and a moment of solidarity with the poor being able to kind of, whatever, stand up for themselves or, you know, say something deeper than whatever we learn in our day-to-day life. But, like, it's not the kind of being with the poor that you get with, like, Paulo Freire or something like that or even uh, other French folks. Like, I guess, you know, I I just have a sense that other other kind of theorists in this orbit, they're trying to think a little bit more on the ground where everybody's sort of on a more level playing field. With Sarah, there's, you know, in an ironic way, by angelifying the poor you know, it mythologizes them out of human existence, out of like regular, I don't know, interhuman context. So it's it's sort of maintaining that ontological barrier between there's the poor over there and they have this special message. And then there's kind of the rest of us who are allowed to hear it every once in a while. And I think that's maybe where I'm rubbing up against. Yeah, there's definitely some friction. It's not altogether like wrong or bad, but there is friction for sure. Um, the other the, the other thing that's interesting yeah. though is that like, you know, to angelify the poor feels a little bit weird in some ways. But the the angelification of nature or something actually kind of feels necessary for to get people to pay attention to it. And that's an interesting mm. <laughs> an interesting disconnect too, I think. I don't know. The same thing doesn't happen mm-hmm. because of uh different like social mores and uh and power differentials and, and so on. So I don't know. Some different <laughs> a different rub there. All that's say that the uh the rhetoric isn't quite perfect, uh, but interesting just the <laughs> same. 
Yeah, and, I, you know, I could be persuaded that I shouldn't be so worked up about it, but, uh, I don't know, it just hits me the wrong way on the face well, of it. Since this um, is a podcast, one thing that though, I think is... and we do need something to talk about, I'm I'm persuading you to be skeptical of this. <laughs> <laughs> Great, I will be. I'll remain skeptical. Um, you can tweet at me, and I may or may not tweet back at you. Um, you know, one thing maybe to round this conversation out, though, that I think is really interesting is Michelle Sarah is trying to to present a way of seeing everything in the world as ultimately some kind of message bearer, right? That's the whole premise of the book that angels are everywhere around us. Um, even if you didn't know it and they're all bearing messages all the time and we have to kind of open up our, our eyes and hearts and minds to be able to perceive those messages. And I think there's something there that's really interesting. I think, uh, I was trying to find like, what are maybe the analogies to what Sarah's doing to what other people have done in history you know, earlier I, I made this analogy to Thomas Aquinas, where Aquinas is using Aristotelian language to talk about angels. Michelle Sarah is using the postmodern language available to him to uh, to talk about angels. I think probably the better analogy actually is maybe somebody like Saint Augustine or something. Where for uh, for Augustine, if you don't know, uh, one of the big keys to reading him is that everything in creation is kind of a, a sign or symbol of God behind it. And it's supposed to kind of lead you to God. So you can learn to read the world in such a way that you're like, wow, what a beautiful creature. Um, but it's also insufficient in all these ways. And that sort of process leads you to eventually find out the God behind all that stuff, you know, the perfect God behind. And uh, so it's it's a way of interpreting all of reality to kind of testify to to the reality of God. And I feel like you actually get us kind of postmodern Augustine with Michelle Sarah. You know, like I really don't like that Augustinian way of seeing things because I think a lot of things in the world don't <laughs> testify very well to God. Um, but uh, Michelle Sarah is maybe creating some other way of, of using that language. Uh, it's not that, I mean, Michelle Sarah is not trying to say like everything should lead you back to the Catholic Church in this <laughs> book or something, right? He's he's doing something different different from Augustine on that score. But he is trying to say, like, the world is there to be read and like you can read it. You know, it, it, it has some kind of legibility to it, which is also a pretty um, a pretty controversial thing to say in French philosophy specifically. <laughs> but uh, a very kind of interesting way of maybe seeing those those Augustinian currents, um, I don't know, uh, translated into a, a postmodern moment. And I think maybe that's what I'll go away from this book with that. Uh, Michel Serre is our weird French St. Augustine, and uh, that's great. Glad that he's Yeah, I think that's that's definitely right. I mean, um, me as not a Catholic, uh, or at least not yet. There's always time in the future to become Catholic, I guess. But uh, I don't see on, I don't see it on my horizon. <laughs> you never know. But um, the thing that I thought throughout this entire this entire book was Genesis 18, because I'm a Protestant, so I went right to the Bible, of course. Um, of and course. Uh, if you're not familiar, uh, <laughs> if you haven't done your Bible study lately... Genesis 18 is like, uh, it's a story in Genesis. So Abraham, he's he's camping out, I guess. <laughs> he's out in the wilderness or whatever. And these uh, <laughs> these three these three men appear at his camp. And Abraham treats them, you know, like royalty, right? He, he treats them with hospitality. And, uh, and surprise, those three guys were, they were angels. They were God. Who can really say? No one's, <laughs> no one's sure. But anyways, in, in that... <laughs> That uh, the the I guess the the important thing about that story and like I, th- I think why it like resonates with me in regards to this book is that like if you do think of things in this type of angelic way, 
it does necessitate a type of hospitality, or it should, right? Like, if these things are kind of bearing messages, then it's really only, like, our job to, like, to see those messages, to accept them, to receive them, to try to figure them out, to be hospitable towards them, to figure out what they mean. I think that's kind of an interesting, I, I don't know, that's just, like, what I keep coming back to, right? Like, how, um, if these things are angels, uh, how do you be hospitable towards them? How do you, like, accept those messages mm-hmm. in a way that's productive and, uh, you know, has has that vibe of hospitality, of being openness, open to it. I, I guess it, it is kind of like, I think, pretty Franciscan, too, in terms of the conversation we were having in previous weeks. But um, that's where my brain went, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's that verse in the New Testament, maybe Hebrews or something. I don't know. I'm Catholic, so we're not, not allowed to read the Bible. <laughs> um, but uh, I think it's in Hebrews somewhere, anyway, where it's uh, about... Um, you should be hospitable to everybody because you might be entertaining angels without being aware of it. Right. And, uh, there is that kind of really funny mystery in the Christian tradition. Also, Michelle Sarah has a great bit in here about how angels are really like rascally. Um, he talks about how they appear and do a lot of mischievous things. They deliver messages, but they also like set Peter free from prison. And that's like a great story in the Bible. Michelle Sarah is like, they're always kind of confounding the authorities, subverting things. And there's something to that that's really interesting, too, that the angelic function isn't just to be like a boring messenger or something, but it's also to sort of tell you something that you wouldn't otherwise know. And that might kind of like rock your world, you know, and I think that is great. Yeah. The other part, uh, too, is they talk about the the wind that knocked Saul off his horse. And and so he had the conversion experience to become Paul. Right. This other like revolutionary type of. Uh, experience where you have a, a huge change in personality that's an angelic sort of reception I, I don't know I mean it might I feel like um, <laughs> where I listen to this podcast you might feel like we're just like reaching for weird <laughs> examples to connect but honestly this is all in the book this is all in this book that Michelle Sayers has given to us we're not reaching we're just like kind of vibing with him and uh, if you think that's weird I mean you're right it is weird it's a very strange book but it's cool. <laughs> it's worth committing to and kind of getting through. Yeah. It's pretty short as well. It's uh, not a hard read. I mean, one day when we write when we write the uh, the Zondervan Magnificast uh, study <laughs> Bible, and it is just like all of the Gospel and Solantanami with a handful of weird French philosophy quotes uh, sprinkled throughout. There's definitely going to be Michelle Sarah in every passage of the Bible that has angels in it. Uh, it's pretty impressive how exhaustive he is yeah. with it actually being couched in a dialogue so i don't know if you're really into that sort of thing if you like french philosophy if you like reading the bible if you like thinking about angels if you love airports uh you got to pick it up it would be a great airplane read that's how i should have read it actually i'm gonna i'm gonna hold on to it yeah next time i'm in, in, in an airplane i'm bringing this book um all right well that's it for this week folks if you liked this conversation about angels um then good for you. I'm really excited for you. I'm you're the exact <laughs> listener we're trying to cater this whole podcast around. Um, next week we're coming back with another weird philosophy book called The History of the Devil by Willem Flusser, a weird another weird philosopher who we've talked about kind of on and off throughout the last few weeks. Um, this week and last week we just decided we wanted to get weird with philosophy and we're doing it. And uh, you're reaping the rewards. And if you like, if you want to reward us for giving you these rewards. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast, and you can subscribe there for a dollar or two dollars or maybe even five or more, but you don't have to. You don't have to do it at all, but it'd be cool if you did. If you do, you get an invite to our great Discord channel where we talk about Michelle Sarah. <laughs> we talk about other weird French philosophy 
where we talk about I don't know all kinds of other stuff too. We posted a lot of good memes today. I put I found this meme and I did post it in the chat today that said hot dogs. <laughs> that wait no it said bologna is just hot dogs for people who like pancakes. I think that was extremely funny. I did cackle to myself. It was very yeah. good. Yeah, I like that one a lot. There was also um, a great tweet in there from John Milbank talking about how important it is that German people what um, sit down is when this they guy pee. Doing? So you can't tweet. Oh my god! You can, <laughs> you can really have your finger on the pulse of what uh, all the theological luminaries are saying these days in that Discord for sure. Also, some great, uh, great conversations about organizing and strategy. If you uh, are interested in that kind of thing too, um, when we're not posting memes, we're talking about John Milbank's pee situation. God, what a disaster <laughs> okay yeah that's right but you can uh pay us money to keep talking <laughs> about it at patreon.com slash the magnificast uh our music is by Mario armstrong the outro is by the illogical spoon and we'll see you next week i don't want to get up for church in the morning church in the morning souls alive Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam Between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early, at least I would have.